Death Spiral, yes. Once again, uh. we are back. It is the only anime podcast originally known to pagans as the Saturnalia, <laughs> uh, celebrated for over 2,000 years now. That's right. We've got a long history on this show. It, that is true. They did have anime back then. Yes, uh, and, uh, you know, pagans obviously have a deep connection to anime. Back again, we're doing anime. This time, we actually did like big time anime not often is there a big time anime uh out uh in the west i can't remember what the last one is they don't come along often no but one did meander into our view this time that not only got us to watch an anime which is almost unheard of but we we left our respective houses and we went to a different building where they show movies to watch this anime. Is that correct? Yes. There were people who are not cretins, um, <laughs> who are not little goblins, uh, who were talking about a movie, and I, I happened to overhear it, and they were talking about, shockingly, an anime movie. And an anime movie not on TV, not on Netflix, uh, not, not on uh, Amazon Prime, but a movie in a movie theater. And uh, I should have known, but of course... The only reason they were talking about it is because this is a Ghibli anime movie. Now, I know uh, some people hold a certain contention around that, like how when they had stores that sold movies and stuff, <laughs> they would have a section uh, called Ghibli, and it would be pretty far away from the section called anime. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. Well, it's funny. It's There's always kind of been that, that distinction. You know, it's kind of like people referring to, to graphic novels kind of the same thing it's like oh hey, like we did yeah like, like, we I, did. like i made the argument just a little <laughs> while ago well which i think is dumb and stupid and you shouldn't have done that uh, <laughs> well I, I still hold on to it uh i mean ghibli movies have always kind of gotten a pass right as being like hey these aren't these aren't anime like these are these are art these are like legit movie movies movie ass movies <laughs> an air of legitimacy hangs around the ghibli name well you watch a ghibli movie and, and and you're like there's hardly any degeneracy in this at all i don't i how could it possibly be an anime <laughs> there there is a distinct lack of of the finer points that set anime apart from anything really present in ghibli's canon uh mostly it's because i think Hayao Miyazaki and and the Ghibli staff do in fact take themselves seriously as filmmakers and artists. Specifically, I mean, you know, the meme is Hayao Miyazaki saying anime was a mistake, which, if we're being fair, uh, he didn't actually say. Everybody, we know, we know he didn't actually say that in the documentary. It's just a meme. He just thought it. <laughs> he just thinks it very loudly. He just thinks about uh, it. With his mouth and words. Yeah, frankly, the only thing holding him back from just making the transition to regular movies is how the the movie industry is somehow even more disgusting than the anime industry. Well, I... Is can we say that for sure? Well, I mean, I've I <laughs> from what I have heard, the Japanese film industry is somehow worse than the uh, Hollywood <laughs> industry, and I do know a few things about Hollywood, and uh, his true hell on earth, all seven original sins kind of overrepresented in one particular business. Uh, it's hard to over exaggerate how truly evil. Um, the American <laughs> film industry is. Oh, uh, I mean, goddamn! The, 
they managed to drag Harvey Weinstein's ass out into the sun, and I promise you, he was uh, the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, no, he was a sacrificial lamb, if, if anybody's yeah. not aware of that at this point. Uh, maybe it's better to to not look into it deeper. Look, I was just saying, I don't even want to, like, roast the guy, but, like, man, even Matt Groening is in Epstein's little black book. I, I just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. And uh, <laughs> he apparently like, likes foot rubs. He likes foot rubs. The man likes foot rubs. He's from Seattle, and he likes foot rubs. <laughs> what, what more do you need to know? Uh, but, yeah, so knowing from hearing people say that somehow the Japanese film industry is some even worse than that kind of sends uh, shivers down my spine. I, I would say I, I would say that it's hard to believe, but uh, I have played the Yakuza games, and uh, I know I know the stuff that gets up behind the <laughs> scenes there. I know what's going down. <laughs> Most of your knowledge about Japan is from Yakuza games. Is it's that right? It's true. It's true. Almost 90% of what I know about the nation comes from uh, the Yakuza series. <laughs> I mean, we touched on it, honestly, uh, kind of incidentally, but when we were talking about those Tomie movies, I did mention a little bit about the production side of that. Uh, the not the first one that we both liked, but uh, the the third one that you watched, and how the director essentially was a porn director for the majority of his career, and kind of treated all of his mainstream films as porn movies. Did not have to switch gears at all to uh, switch up production methods. So the real the real non joke answer to okay, well then we'll skip to it. how the Japanese the Japanese film industry can be like somehow worse than Hollywood is because Hollywood came up from the vaudeville uh, theater entertainment scene. Uh, you know, at the turn of the uh, turn of the century, eighteen uh, hundreds, nineteen hundreds, that evolved from like traveling vaudeville shows into a centralized production line of making films. Uh, whereas the Japanese film industry sprang up wholly from from porn first, then making movies. <laughs> they call them pink films, yeah, because they love being cutesy about it. it but you know, it kind of boils down to all the same shit. I mean, if you think about the way like Kurosawa or, you know, Otsu or whatever, you know, these Japanese auteurs had the disgust they had for their own art form is can maps maps pretty cleanly to uh, their Western counterparts. Well, just imagine the shoulder rubbing that they had to do with the types of people that they had to like interact with to get their amazing cannons even made in the first place. Yes, I just, I, I do laugh thinking about Otsu going to industry parties and having to talk to, like, <laughs> their version of Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, what the fuck, man? Well, just I imagine pitching the season cycle films to a producer you know for sure his main source of income is human trafficking. Like, you know yeah. that for sure about him. <laughs> But that's like, that is what Kubrick did too, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, the, uh, the man m made eyes wide shut and then he got killed. Just, <laughs> I'm just saying. Look it up. Uh, he, he made eyes wide shut and then the CIA killed him. So, uh, you know, the, who the CIA has failed to kill uh, <laughs> over and over again is Miyazaki. Now that guy, he is slippery as an eel. He's managed to evade uh, foreign intelligence agencies uh, all the way up to the ripe old age of, what is he, 120 now? Somewhere around there. Yeah. And he finally put out 
his most nostalgic movie ever. And it actually got an American theatrical release. So as we were alluding to, we went to an American theater and we watched a American theatrical release cut of an anime Japanese movie. Unheard of. Uh, revolutionary for the time. It's pretty wild. I honestly trying to, I really am honestly trying to rack my brain right now to think of like, what was the last, what was the last anime that I saw in a theater? What was it? Fuck, man. Shoot. Uh, shoot is all I got to say to that in a theater. Uh, and in actual theater. New release only or like any, any anime yes, film? like a really, no, like a released, a new released movie. Like, fuck, dude, Steam Boy? That can't possibly be true because that was like 20 years ago. <laughs> That's the last one that I can think of. New anime <laughs> release going to see in the theater. It's really fucked up, man. Yeah. It's really fucked up. Uh, well, well, we did it this time and we went and saw uh, The Boy and the Heron. A new Studio Ghibli movie, new directed by Miyazaki movie. I had to like double do a double take because at this point for me, like the meme of Miyazaki constantly coming out of retirement to like make one more movie, it has gained uh, more momentum in my brain than his actual film catalog because I was surprised when I looked up and saw that the last movie he directed was The Wind Rises, uh, which was like 10 years ago. That was 2013. Yeah. And I could have sworn that he like came out of retirement four more times since then. Uh, but apparently not. Nope. Just talking shit in the news. <laughs> Off on the sidelines, throwing shade. Yeah. Uh, as the elderly in Japan do when they retire. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because that was the movie I kept thinking of the entire time. I was watching Boy and Heron. I could not stop thinking about it for reasons that become obvious within like the first 15 minutes of the movie. But, uh, hey, you know, here's right off the bat, I have to ask you, what did you think about um, them using the Simpsons font for the credits? <laughs> what, was, what was up with that? I did not put that together, but now you that you that? no, now that you pointed out, I can't unsee it. What the fuck? They just straight up used the Simpsons font uh, <laughs> for the credits of this movie. Uh, they just kind of smash cut to... Just uh, n no fancy animation for the ending credits or anything. Just a blue screen uh, with an endless white scroll of Simpsons font. Uh, a really weird way to just throw me for a, one last loop at the end of a very strange movie experience uh, overall. Well, I don't know. I think that when you put it that way, it actually kind of ties in cohesively to how I felt about the rest of the movie and what I think the themes were. Uh, because... To me, this is like a movie about obviously service level re reading is that it's a movie about coming to terms with grief and death and processing those emotions that that go along with those things. Uh, but metatextually, this is a movie about Hayao Miyazaki's career, like ending and him not having any sense of closure or finality about his own life. Right. That's an interesting that's an interesting angle on it. Expand on that. Well, OK, so speak on that. I will. I will. We have to get in a little bit to what the movie is about. Right. Uh, a young boy, um, Mahito, who's 
growing up in uh, World War II, his dad is some kind of businessman who makes plane parts for the Japanese army. Yeah, he's an arms dealer. <laughs> he's a lord of war. There, yeah, I really, there. I, the movie downplays it a little bit, and this is my connection to, to Wind Rises, but like, I really want to stress how awkward it is that the goofy uh, comic relief father character is an arms dealer. He is selling weapons of war uh, that are used directly against Ben Affleck in the movie uh, Pearl, <laughs> Pearl Harbor. Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is a direct through line uh, to this movie to Ben Affleck and Pearl Harbor. <laughs> I also couldn't stop thinking about that. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Uh, okay, so he has he has a, a mother that dies at the beginning of the movie. She heard the hospital that she's in doesn't have her for long. Yeah, the hospital gets bombed. And uh, anyway, his his father soon remarries. Which I don't. Did you get weirded out a little bit that like his dad almost immediately marries his dead wife's younger sister? Uh, he fucked her first. Yeah, uh, there was that baby was in there before the marriage happened. Right. The timing does not add up. Yeah. Actually, this is something I was trying to talk to uh, my watch party fellow members with. Your associates. Yes. That w- there is two aspects of that. Uh, I know you want to get through this breakdown first, but there are two aspects of that. One being that uh, th- that part of the movie, the part that would have actually explained that stuff, uh, ended up on the cutting room floor. And the other part being that the way that widowership and and a kind of upper class uh society works in in that kind of class stratified society and i don't want to say this is japanese specific because you see this a lot in uh mid to late 1800s uh england as well the way that upper classes kind of uh have this weird incestuous move in a way to prevent family members from being uh ostracized financially or socially from their own class mm-hmm. uh you do have people who end up marrying their brothers or sister-in-laws a lot as uh, uh, part of a, a, a sort of lateral social move. Yeah, that's another reason that I hate the British. Yes, it's not good, <laughs> but it is It is also important to note because this is one of the lesser picked up angles. I mean, you have the kid doesn't read initially as like rich uh, or super upper class because the, the movie's not interested in pitching that part, but it is important to know that yeah, this kid is a, he's an elite. Yeah. I think they make it as clear as they need to when they show him, when they move out of Tokyo to go kind of take refuge in the mountain village, right? That they move to, to kind of be away from the front line of the war. Yeah, with daddy's new girl. Yeah, To well, first of all, they move into a palatial manse up in the mountains. Yeah. Uh, that is staffed by uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Yep, exactly. I want to point out that that imagery is very, very, like, in your face. They go to this, this you know, uh, kind of manner that's staffed by seven old ladies. Yes, seven old dwarves. <laughs> that, that are all stooped over and dwarf-like. It's very, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's setting a theme. Yes, and not, again, not to get too far ahead of us, but when a certain female character shows up later at a glass coffin, I was terrified that he was going to make out with her. Yes. Terrified. <laughs> I had the same thought! <laughs> yes, I was like, please don't let that happen. But luckily, those uh, literary illusions uh are basically pointless they don't go anywhere 
uh, like many of the other themes in the movie. Yeah. Uh, they're just there. They don't get developed on or anything. So that just, you, we just, we're allowed to forget about that pretty quickly afterwards. So, you know, to make a, a very long movie, uh, probably closer to in length to what it should have been. His new stepmom slash aunt goes missing one day after he's had several strange encounters with a, with a mysterious heron that he knows is like, you know, not of this world. He catches on pretty almost immediately. Like, Oh, he wants to fucking kill that thing so fast. It's almost like a, it almost gave me a little bit of Dexter vibes. Like (laughs) this, this kid sees an animal and he's like, I want to kill it. Uh, that animal's fucked up. I want it to die. I want it to die. Uh, and, and so the, the stepmom slash aunt goes missing one day and he kind of goes, uh, on a spirited away journey to kind of find her and bring her back. And he journeys through kind of a fanciful dreamscape of mixing and overlapping realities where he eventually, basically he meets God, right? And and God says like, hey, uh, I, I pulled you here because I want you to to take over my duties. My time is up. Yeah, talk about, talk about fucking Nepo baby. Yeah. Like, (laughs) damn, come on, man. Uh, and my, my time is up and like, now I want you to kind of take over and try and mold this world into something that you think is good. And the kid basically says like, no, nah, I don't, I don't want to do that. Uh, nope. I'm good. Yeah. No, that sounds like a whole thing. Um, also like I've got my own shit that I'm dealing with and I don't really want to inject that into whatever I create, which is exactly what you did. And I think that's what I was getting at earlier is, uh, this movie is essentially about Miyazaki coming to terms with the fact that his son is bad at making movies. (laughs) That is a fun read that I hadn't thought of. Yeah. Yeah. But that is that does kind of slot in pretty well. He's like, I, I, I don't have anyone to leave my my empire of fantasy that I've created to, uh, and and even if I could force this on him, like he doesn't want to do it anymore. He doesn't have the same passion or joy in this that I do, uh, and I guess that I'm just going to die and have to be okay with that. Yes, I'll just die. But yeah. of course, for Miyazaki to make it work for himself, he does have to simultaneously be the old man and the boy. Uh, well, which is, he, which he, is he can't also help. He can't help but make himself the boy in this. I don't know. I don't know. I well, I, I think what was one of the things that I got really into the movie about was that initially the main character is a really unique Ghibli movie main character, which got me really excited. Generally, our our Ghibli movie main characters are, for a long period of time, young women or girls who have a brave heart but are uh, unsure of themselves and their own self-worth. Or we have a, a, a virtuous boy who is uh, uh, rising up to meet a, a destiny that he's afraid is too big for him. Uh, and here we have a spoiled, arrogant, fucking angry little piece of shit who has the urge to kill the first animal he sees wherever he goes. And that's really exciting to me. I I, I like that you bring that up because I think Mahito's uh, tendency towards violence, both 
outwardly and inwardly is kind of a major theme of his character, right? It would be if anything in the movie approached something that actually like a tangible theme. <laughs> okay, well, okay, I want you to expand then on what you mean by by you thought it was like two different movies that they got cut together. Okay, well, here I'll say it. I, th- this is I don't think it's two different movies that got cut together. What I think is this movie it's missing solidly an hour of footage um, to work as a movie. Uh, I I could get into lots of little details, and, and I mean that not in a, a, a subjective way. I really, truly mean that very literally and objectively. This is movie missing scenes. If you looked at the script, uh, I would bet you any amount of money there are huge scenes that got cut. One in particular... Uh, and this is uh, this is an early on one because I don't want to just spoil chunks of the movie, but there are other parts I can point to to prove my point here. But the one and probably the biggest and most consequential scene that just does not exist is the scene where Mahito confronts his father about his new stepmother. In the movie that we have, Mahito is tense with his stepmother and she picks up on it a little bit. And then he has his own weird little issues. And then his stepmom just disappears. She just fucking books it out of the house into fantasy land. Uh, and that's, that's just what happens. The way it stands now, there's basically no reason that happened. She doesn't really get any character motivation. And uh, her character also just never gets developed later on either. What is supposed to happen is that, like we mentioned just a little bit ago, Mahito has anger problems. He's hung up on his mom. He believes this marriage to a new woman, especially his sister, is uh, a betrayal by his father, right? It's his father trying to replace his dead mother with a lookalike, which is horrifying to Mahito. He despises her and he develops an intense anger towards his father. Now, either he confronts his father or her about it, and he makes some pretty inflammatory comments about uh, the unborn child in her belly, right? This causes the stepmother to flee. This is what sets up the actual movie. This is the literally the inciting incident of the entire fucking movie. And it was cut. It does not exist in the film. Uh, again, I mean this quite literally. This is objectively a scene that does exist in the script. It's almost... Uh, a fucking cornerstone of the entire narrative from a mechanical standpoint. It does not exist in the movie. (laughs) I see what you're saying. uh, And I think that that totally makes sense for a more traditional type of narrative. Uh, I, I did not get that feeling when I watched it. And in fact, on at least for me, on like an intuitive emotional level, this movie made sense all the way through for me. Yes, because you're doing a bunch of work on the part of the movie. <laughs> you are filling in lots of gaps uh, on well, your okay, own. So when you when you say she disappeared for no reason, I didn't take that. I th- immediately assumed that that she had been lured away by the heron the same way the heron was trying to lure away Mahito. Yes, see, the heron, that's the thing, is the heron in this scenario, in this scene that they cut, 
The Heron would have been the inciting incident behind all of this. The Heron is the one that is inciting his anger, right? And that is in the movie, though it's stripped down. That's why he wants to kill the Heron, because the Heron is inciting his anger against his stepmother, against his father. The Heron is doing that in order to piss off the stepmother so that she can be drawn out, right? Because the whole point is to lure little Mahito into fantasy land. That's the that's the objective of all characters involved, right? Mm-hmm. That so the heron in there is uh, is a key mechanic of that. But the, you again, you are making that assumption because that also that scene does not exist in the movie. So you are doing a bunch of work for the movie. Whether it is the heron just going like, "Hey, I've got cool stuff over here. Come look," or it's what I said. Either way. That doesn't exist in the movie. It's on the floor. I, I guess what I was trying to say is that, in my mind, that doesn't need to exist for me. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Sure. It, it doesn't have to. Just like, you know, no, nothing in a movie has to be there. You know, there's lots of movies where you can just not do traditional narrative devices. You could just skip them completely. And especially in lots of weird experimental shit. People intentionally choose to avoid making those exact explicit connections. But, you know, we've watched a lot of Ghibli movies. We know what kind of director and writer Miyazaki is, and he is a fundamental structuralist. All of his movies are very, very tight narratives Mm -hmm. uh, with very, very coherent structures. And that's what makes them hit so hard. I mean, the direct analogy here, connecting this movie back to any of his other catalog, I mean, this is obviously the closest to Spirited Away. And Spirited Away is a phenomenal masterwork that feels completely and utterly coherent, despite having huge disparate elements. I mean, if you pull that movie apart, there's just weird tangents all over the place. There's huge sections of the movie that just have nothing narratively going on from a mechanical standpoint, but that movie feels absolutely coherent and tangible every second well, of the way. Well, that's because we as the audience at that point, early on, we are we're supposed to buy in to we are in a world where logic and the rules that we're used to don't necessarily apply. Uh, and I, I think that we were supposed to be, we were supposed to be getting the same feeling here, uh, which is why I guess I wasn't too preoccupied in uh, specific motivations for character actions throughout the movie so much as I was trying to relate what their actions are saying about about their emotional state. Sure, yes, you're you are you're dwelling in the meta narrative space and I'm saying that the meta narrative space is also like fucking Swiss cheese. Uh, <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> yes, because there are again, there are just huge chunks that just don't go anywhere that have no way to loop back into the main narrative. The fact that we start basically in the land of the dead and that never gets uh, updated or resolved at any other point in the movie. The fact that the the pregnancy happening in the fantasy land never gets updated or resolved at any point in the movie. Uh, the fact that there's an entire chunk about Mahito and his trying to reconcile himself and his feelings with his mother who he literally meets in the fantasy land and that never gets updated or resolved or explored in any way. Like, these are huge fucking chunks missing from a movie 
directed and scripted, I assume, by, a, like I said, a fundamentally a structuralist, a formalist like Miyazaki, means that, like, this movie is unfinished. Uh, and I'm not, I haven't even gotten to the point where, like, lots of the audio and the score is just not done. Like, it's a very quiet movie, and I like that choice, but there are lots of scenes where it feels like it wasn't a choice either. It was just like, there's just nothing here. We, we, have, to put, we have to put some kind of dialogue in here because we have too much open uh, audio space. There's just lots of shots of characters talking to each other with no sound. Like, not even music, just no sound, which is weird. Again, it's like a choice I don't hate, but a lot of the times when it's happening, I'm like, okay, wait, hold on. They're doing this again. Is is this a choice? Okay, so so are you familiar with the uh, <laughs> the classic Halloween uh, movie uh, Satan's Little Helper? Yes, of course I'm familiar with Satan's Little Helper. I recently uh, got the Blu-ray special edition of that movie because I love it so much, Jesus and Christ. I watched it with the with the director's commentary on, and there's a segment where he's talking about the score or lack thereof, mm-hmm. where he basically says, like, yeah, uh, I don't like putting, like, background music or incidental sounds in my scenes because I think that the visuals should speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just had to take it. Like, <laughs> wait, you don't like putting music and sound in your movie? <laughs> I mean, I'm not entirely unsympathetic to that but I do, I do think making that as a blanket statement is pretty wild uh yeah i don't know i i like the quiet i like the quiet though the cinema i did go to and see has terrible soundproofing so during a lot of the quiet moments i did hear the movie playing next door which was not ideal i hate it when that happens not a fan of that that really fucking sucked uh, not enough that I could guess what the movie playing was, so I guess that's good, but pretty close. <laughs> uh, I, I got lots of attempts to try. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Putting that aside, I mean, that's obviously my main criticism, I guess, if you can call it that, that this is essentially an unfinished movie. I think that's true, because I I know that this movie had a really long production time much longer than it was initially slated to be because i think miyazaki started working on it back in i want to say like uh 2016 or 2017 where they produced a majority of the storyboards and started initial production on the beginning of the movie and then uh iseo takahata uh who is the other big name director from studio ghibli who directed you know, like Grave of the Fireflies and Princess Kaguya and was probably like the closest person in the world that Hayao Miyazaki could like think of as as family or a friend. <laughs> uh, he died uh, very suddenly and they paused production on Boy and the Heron for like four years before he started working on it again. Sure. So I'm, if I had to take a guess, I would say that played a pretty big uh, role in why it feels so disjointed in, in production. Sure. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, it could have just been lost in time, you know, the incoherence crept in when they were working on it. It, That's, I totally understand that. I, I will say this is, this is to be nice to it. And not that a Miyazaki movie needs uh, to be talked down to or whatever, but like, <laughs> I did think this is the funniest 
Miyazaki movie. <laughs> you know what? Honestly, I agree with you. There were some actually, there were some real funny parts. Um, I laughed a lot. I I particularly laughed when the the scene with all of the parakeet soldiers going into the quote unquote real world and turning into regular parakeets and they just shit over everything. I thought that was really funny. Yes, there's large sections of this movie that deal with parakeets, and all the parakeet stuff is incredibly funny. I loved all the parakeets. I love that they're cannibals. I love that they're fascists. Uh, I love that they have big googly eyes for some reason. I loved everything to do with the parakeets. They are extremely funny. Uh, they're very charming, honestly, for fascists. They're very good. And yeah, and one of the one of the biggest losses I think a part of uh, of not finishing this movie is that the parakeet king, the fascist dictator parakeet king, he clearly was supposed to be the big bad guy of the whole movie and he could have been developed so much more and had so much more screen time. Uh, and I feel like that was our biggest loss is we did not get enough of the Parakeet King. So speaking of unexplored themes, you know, I in the movie, I definitely expected them to draw much more of a connection, you know, between the Parakeet soldiers and, you know, that they're fascists. Yeah. And the fact that his dad is making plane parts for the Imperial Japanese Army, you know, making flying soldiers essentially. Yeah, that's a huge huge just dangling orphaned idea, right? Yeah. With nowhere to go uh because it never gets developed. I mean, just like basically every idea. You know, going back to you know, to what I said about about that guy dying, I think that this was supposed to be a much more traditionally ghibli structured film and then they paused production uh for several years and then when they came back Miyazaki decided that it needed to be much more, much more wistful and introspective, I think, from what it, he initially had intended it to be, which was to be much more uh, fanciful and I'm not going to say kid friendly, but but definitely <laughs> more digestible for children. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we can speculate. I, I certainly think that it's interesting that at least to me, the the setup, all of the stuff before we go into fantasy land has so much more coherence and potency. It's more subtle. It's more interesting. The characters are more developed before the quote unquote real story kicks off. Their relationships to each other are more explored in that first 30 minutes than anything that happens afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, it has way more interesting visuals, I, which is so weird to say about a movie that immediately goes into like <laughs> fantasy land, anything that you can imagine can exist. It's like, but, but the stuff you did like in the first opening scene of like the first five minutes of the movie is like the most interesting animation of the, the whole movie. <laughs> like, I, I wish they had played more with, so, you know, I mentioned that at the very beginning of the movie, there's a, a, a fire scene where his mom dies and when he's kind of like running towards the flames, yeah. trying oh, to cool as hell. trying to save her and everything becomes progressively more and more brushstroke heavy and blurred and smeared uh, until it, it just kind of blacks out the screen with, with smoke. Uh, I thought that was amazing. I love that. Yeah. Uh, they never really went, went back to more experimental styles in that way, they kind of stuck uh, pretty close to the 
what I would call the general Ghibli cinematic style. You know what I mean? Yeah, because that's the that is. I mean, it's unfortunate to stick it in the first couple minutes of your movie, but that is the emotional, the emotionally intensity. That is the that is the high point. It yeah. never becomes that intense ever again, uh, which is not what you not what you'd want from a traditional three act structured movie. Um, generally, you want the climax to be somewhere in the third act. Uh, <laughs> you know, again, just from a you know a formalist structuralist position. That's usually what you would do with a, a three-act structured movie. <laughs> but, you know, who, who, who fucking cares? Whatever. <laughs> uh, if you want to just do a movie where, like, stuff happens, that's totally fine. If Look, I, I can only speak of my experience, and I tend to view these things mechanically. That's just uh, part of my brain damage. Uh, and that's that is what I saw when I was looking up at the screen. That's that is just what I saw. All right. I can only convey the experience that I had. Uh, and it was watching essentially a production cut, <laughs> uh, an assembly edit of uh, a Ghibli movie, uh, which is one of the weirdest experiences I've had in a in a theater uh, since COVID started. Well, it's probably going to be the last one. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? It's fucking weird. Okay. Oh, okay. Before we move on, let me just ask you this. Uh, was it worth going to see in the theater? Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm absolutely glad. I would never skip seeing a new Miyazaki movie in the theater uh, unless it's The Wind Rises and I find the entire subject matter to be intensely distasteful. Yeah, we didn't really get into the... Uh... <laughs> I guess we touched on it a little bit, but you know, a running theme in Miyazaki's movies is a little bit of of war apologia for for the production machine in Japan at the time. Yeah, I'm you know I don't want to say I don't want to say that because I know The Wind Rises is not a, I I would not describe it as apologia. No, I, no nothing I, that happens in this movie I would describe as apologia. I just think that it's a subject matter that you cannot play coy with and i think when a movie is not interested in exploring what it means to be building weapons of war uh during uh <laughs> world war ii of all fucking wars not to say you know there's a huge difference but uh i think you're not allowed to background that stuff it, it creates more problems than it solves that, well, yeah, I, I I agree with that for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, we watched other stuff, right? I mean, you just watched some regular ass, small screen ass, like boring ass anime, right? Well, okay. Uh, that can't be the only anime you watched. No, no. Um, I I watched Boy and the Heron, um, and you know, I I liked it overall. I will say that. I guess to to kind of cap it with, I liked it. Sure. Um, I liked it, but yeah, you know everything i just said yeah <laughs> uh but but the issue is that you know criticisms aside it is still like objectively art with care and intention put into creating it so i felt like i had to to balance the scale a little bit and watch some real just uh, despicable trash <laughs> you were uncomfortable with seeing something that is like has an ideological vision and a, an appreciation and respect for its medium. Yeah. It, it didn't feel like I got the true anime experience that I needed. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I really needed to, to supplement. Sure. So I went out and I watched the first couple episodes of 
The vexations of a shut-in vampire princess. God, that's so bad. It it actually, it makes me, I don't like using the word, but it makes me cringe saying it out loud. (laughs) It does, it does make me feel a bit ill. Yeah. Especially the, the use of the word vexation in that sentence immediately puts me on my guard, I have to say. What about it's threatening? There is a, there is a, I think a sort of knee-jerk tendency I'm not even sure where it comes from. I, I, it's maybe a, a feeling of insecurity or something where to overcompensate for the obvious lowbrowness of the content, you try to kind of dress it up uh, with, you know, flowery language. You see this let in me, other Let me put it this well. way. Uh, in, my, in my freshman year of college, I took a philosophy class and there was a, another student uh, who was named Caspian, who who wore uh, black turtlenecks and parted his hair perfectly in the middle. Uh, and and he is the type of person that would use the word vexations regularly. <laughs> wow, that's... A- <laughs> so that's the association that I have with that word. Yeah, he's both ahead and very behind the times. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, So what were these particular vexations? Well, as you may have guessed from the rest of the title, the the main character is a vampire, which turns out doesn't really mean much because, like, vampires are actually in this setting. They're basically just elves. Like, they don't even really have fangs most of the time. They don't drink blood? They do, but, like, they don't have to. And, in fact, our main character is a shut-in vampire, a hikikomori who doesn't like drinking blood or doing regular vampire stuff. She just wants to stay in her room. What a loser. Yeah, I know. Well, okay, I I think that the core concept of that can be funny. Uh, I like the idea of a kind of, like, mythical creature, a powerful being who just, because they're so powerful, it has no need to kind of engage with greater society, kind of like, um, kind of like uh, Yofukashi no Uda. Uh, I like, I like that take sure, on it. Sure. Well, there's lots of. I mean, there's the you know the one hit vampire anime that happened a couple seasons ago. There's also like I talked about last time the 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 grateful vampire girl who. Uh, is homeless and has to drink the random passerby's blood. There's also, of course, the 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 very classic, you know, Dracula angle where living for thousands of years basically turns you into a shut-in because everything in the world is boring. <laughs> See, I like that. I I think yeah. that's a funny way to look at it. Uh, that's a good angle, and they yeah. abandon that point of the premise almost immediately. Of course, of within course. the first five minutes. Yeah, and and so what this is really about is like a titty anime about about mm-hmm. sexy characters <laughs> yeah uh, she develops her own harem yes so okay so the premise is we have our our main character who is kind of she's the daughter of of a big wig vampire and in this world there are kind of five different nations that are constantly at war with each other. Oh, God. Yeah. And her dad is like a a big general in the vampire nation. Oh, no. Yes. Uh, I, I will throw in now that the nation that they start off like at war with are the Beastmen, 
who are uh, first of all they're just like they have just regular human bodies with just straight up animal heads so just you have deer sure. head guy bear head guy you know wolf head guy whatever you want yeah what i found weird is that um they they are dressed the same as like they're all wearing fidel castro outfits they're all dressed like cuban revolutionaries what yeah yeah they're all wearing like the the drab uh the olive drab jumpsuits yeah, yeah. with like the red star patches and everything right it's very weird it, it was a weird angle a weird look to put on them but anyway her dad obviously wants her to not be a shut-in and by the way i i want to mention like you know shut-in hikikomori these have a very specific connotation with what you expect like what what do you think a hikikomori vampire looks like uh well i'm unfortunately poisoned with knowledge because <laughs> yeah. i have watched and read much manga and anime so uh obviously what i hear uh vampire girl i think uh <laughs> uh probably something something like from bake monogatari a like little girl who wears a very skimpy outfit yeah no you're that's it right on right on the mark yeah yeah uh, unfortunately <laughs> yeah yes. and 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 in fact the very first the very first scene of the very first episode is a pan up shot of her taking a bath uh so so that's really setting the stage uh-huh yep great glad to introduce our character so the reason that she is a shut-in vampire is because she was relentlessly bullied at vampire school growing up because she doesn't have any vampire powers uh, and she doesn't like to drink blood she can uh, and in fact needs to occasionally but she doesn't mm -hmm. like it she thinks blood is gross and, and so she doesn't have any superpowers her dad wants her to take over his spot as general in the vampire army and so sets it up with the vampire queen uh, the empress to basically like force her into being a general by just saying, uh, you are one now and you have to go do it. There, there's really not much more to it. Okay. Like her, the, the, it's supposed to be played off as a joke. You know, she just wants to stay in her bed doing nothing all day. And then her dad busts in her room yeah. and is like, Hey, I got you a job being a general in the army. Let's go. Right. Right. Yeah. A classic setup. Yeah. Uh, and and what the series actually is is you know it's it's your your average kind of like uh, idiot savant story like uh, irresponsible Captain Tyler but with with underage titty vampires so irresponsible Captain Tyler but instead of like a happy go lucky horny loser slacker it's a depressed not horny loser slacker little girl yes and and i think the the other major difference is whereas tyler had more of like an idiot savant quality where he would succeed no matter what he did yeah uh she's actually really bad at everything that she does and the only reason that she accomplishes anything is because everyone thinks that she's so cute and so they bend over backwards to to do things for her and to make sure that she succeeds. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yes. Uh, the fetishization of her her, her, her youthful form uh, is her superpower. Yes, and this is kind of exemplified in her quote-unquote assistant that she is assigned, who is 
for some reason required by vampire law to wear a sexy French maid outfit <laughs> uh, and has kind of like a, a stalker obsession uh, with with the main character. And <laughs> yeah. so is is constantly doing things like, you know, uh, our character will wake up with her assistant in bed naked next to her. Uh, and she's constantly making uh, weird suggestive remarks and engineering embarrassing uh, lewd scenarios for them to to fall into. Oh, don't that say kind of lewd. Thing. Don't <laughs> give up and just start calling things lewd. Come on. <laughs> so, but they, but they, the 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 assistant is also female. Yes, female. Don't don't say that. Oh, so it's not bad then. It's not bad, though. No, it's not sexual harassment when it's two girls. Yeah, it's a girl doing it, so it's actually funny and cute. Uh, so I got about halfway through the second episode and, and gave up on that one. Yeah, that sounds god-awful. Uh, but it did balance the scales. It did accomplish uh, what I wanted to, which made me feel better about watching something that may have actually been worth my time. Yeah, like remind you, oh, actually, this is this is why Ghibli is kept in a different section from the rest of the anime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is why we go to a theater to watch Ghibli and why I turn <laughs> off all the lights and make sure my wife is out of the house yeah. before I watch <laughs> Vexations of a Vampire Shut-In. Yeah, watch, watch Vampire Shut-In on my phone. Yeah, <laughs> in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, can I tell you about one that's not bad? Oh, yeah. We, did you watch an anime? I did watch an anime. I, I had actually been watching an anime before and after this movie um, to keep myself grounded. But uh, I was actually watching an older MAPPA production. Oh. Because I was curious. You know, obviously, it seems like MAPPA is uh, on this sort of, like, death march uh, into oblivion either they're going to conquer the world and become the only anime studio or they're gonna like run the fucking wheels off uh, i don't know but um, uh it's the second one it's 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 the second one for sure we're gonna probably gonna find out well we're gonna find out in a few years but or maybe less than that if they accidentally kill all their employees <laughs> i don't know but uh but they did a little while ago they had done, and this, maybe this is sort of following in the footsteps of uh, all the Pluto stuff I had watched, because they had done a, their own Osama Tezuka adaptation uh, a little while ago. Uh, they did an adaptation of Dororo. Dororo. Do you know Dororo? Dororo? Are you familiar uh, with Dororo? I've heard the name. I'm looking it up right now. It's a classic Tezuka manga. It's the story of the boy whose body parts are taken by the demons. Yes. And he has to get them back from the demons. Yes. Um, it's funny enough, uh, that boy's name is Hyakimaru, uh, and Doro is actually just the funny sidekick. That manga is interesting because it is very much uh, an Osamu Tezuka uh, voice in that it is essentially shonen Popeye. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much Osamu Tezuka you've actually read, um, but he's like very much into like uh, drawing like early Mary Melody, like Popeye type stuff. Like that well, was his I mean, shit. He, you know? he grew up and came up on the old um, Donald Duck comics, right? Yes. Uh, which is where yes. he got a lot of his inspiration, uh, early Mickey Mouse and other Disney yes. stuff. Well, and I say I say Popeye very particularly because like a lot of his his background characters are just are just Bluto. 
He draws Bluto a lot over and over again. And yeah, and like a lot of his fight scenes are fight scenes from Popeye. Like I, I'm not pulling that one out of my ass here. Like he he clearly loved Popeye. <laughs> like they do he, like the little he, wind up punch thing and Yes. He recreates Popeye all the time except in his version of Popeye people like get their fucking heads cut off and like spray <laughs> blood everywhere. Awesome. Uh, which is very funny. But it still has like the kind of sense of humor of Popeye too, which is which is great. Uh I mean the man's a classic for a reason. It's it's fascinating to go read Osama Tezuka in the modern day um just cuz of, you know, the 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 kind of references he's pulling and his style compared to what his uh, what a million different versions of ripping him off has become. Mm-hmm. And this adaptation of Dororo is just another example of it because they choose to really reinterpret the story of Dororo. Instead of just doing a Popeye shonen, um, they decide to kind of take a more serious, like modern kind of shonen adaptation version of it. Uh, and they make a lot of changes, a lot of them which I actually really like. It's short, it's completely self-contained, only 24 episodes, and the animation is really nice, it's really crisp. There's some, like, really great fight scenes of just smooth and interesting Now, uh, uh, from what I've seen of a lot animation. of early MAPPA stuff is they were the ones experimenting, I think, most with with a lot of that early CG stuff, and some of it can look pretty rough. Uh, so I don't know how that applies to Dororo. You know, the yeah, lo- there's not really any CGI in this. It okay. Is, it is very traditional stuff. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, there's some, but it, it's, it is, uh, not used in the way it is used now. It's, it's very flat. It's very clean. It looks really great. And there's huge, there's really huge, bold adaptational moves made in this that I really like. Like, for example, they strip down the amount of demons from 48 down to uh, 12, which is a good move uh, because you only have 24 episodes, you know. <laughs> it also means that when he gets a new body part, it's a lot more uh, emotionally impactful, you know, There's because there's, again, there's not as many. Mm-hmm. What it also does is in the manga, despite being at the start of the manga, only having some of his body parts he basically is completely independent for magical reasons. He can basically see, he can basically hear, he can basically speak, he can move fine. He's constantly jabbering at everybody, even though he, he likes to remind us every once in a while that he actually, he doesn't know what people are saying. He's just pretending to know. Uh, and he's really good at it. He has full conversations without knowing uh, what the other person is saying, which is hilarious. Uh, doesn't doesn't play as well in like a serious anime. You know what I mean? That's like uh, uh, the bitten, um, uh, the heart she holler with Patton Oswalt's dad pre-recording yes. all of his conversations on VHS. Yes. It exa- it is exactly like that. Yes, that's, that's he very somehow funny. Antici- he anticipates what everybody is going to say to him. <laughs> in the in the anime, he starts off with none of his limbs. He doesn't have his face or his eyes or his ears or his tongue. So we meet him, and he can't he can't see, he can't hear, he can't speak. He can kind of see soul energy, and that's what he uses to like track down and fight demons, but. When he meets Dororo in the first episode, he gets 
part of his face back, but like not his nose. And it's like the first time that he has feeling. So when he meets Dororo, it's like a big emotional moment. And that's what connects them as opposed to in the manga where Dororo starts following him around because Dororo just wants to steal from him. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's funny, but I mean, that's, that's a relatable motivation. Yeah. And Dororo is apparently means a Dorobo, which is like thief. So I guess that's kind of the connection there. I, I don't really know too much about that part. But in this version, it's a lot more emotional and their connection is a lot more about Dororo uh, uh, kind of guiding him through his his re-entry into like humanity. And not to, I don't want to get into the entire disability side of it because there's a lot to say about that in that lens. But uh, I, I, you know, I, I would taking this in the intentional way, you know, in the generous way where it's supposed to be read uh, more metaphorically, right? Of Hyakimaru regaining his humanity through his body parts and Doro acting as sort of his on ramp to that, allowing him to like uh, kind of emotionally navigate his way back into uh, seeing and hearing and feeling and speaking. And all of this stuff, you know, is a really smart adaptational move. It, it really, really makes Hiyakimaru's character much more sympathetic and enjoyable to watch his progression as opposed to the manga, which is really more of like he's kind of just an asshole for the most part, <laughs> uh, a wise talking, uh, standoffish asshole, even though he can't speak or hear or see. <laughs> like, it's really quite an accomplishment. In this one, we get to watch as he 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 feels for the first time, like literally feels, and he hears for the first time, and that like hearing for the first time is a really traumatic experience for him because everything is too loud, right? And Doro has to comfort him, and and uh, like him hearing the sound of a human voice singing for the first time is like super emotional for him, and it kind of like wakes him up to the experience of like knowing other people, and that's a really crazy important moment for him. The first time he speaks, the first time he says uh, Dodo's name to him is like super fucking impactful and important in this version of the story. So like, man, they did huge moves that are all super paid off. Uh, and I really like it. Okay, well, let me ask you this then. Yeah. He eat any spinach? In the manga, they are they definitely allude to it. Um in the anime, does he, he like? Uh, they, does he scarf down a rice ball and onigiri, and it goes into his arms, <laughs> and he gets big muscles? Uh, unfortunately, no. Uh, he, he mostly does not eat at all. Damn. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, in the first episode, we see that he mainly just kind of eats grass and shit off the side of the road. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so I guess that's kind of like spinach. Uh, <laughs> it's. Uh, a super interesting version of a classic Tezuka story. And it is super interesting just in the sense of like, here's what you can do adapting a modern classic uh, and not being, you know, quote unquote, uh, authentic to the the source material, which is, again, you, I know we harp on this every time it comes up, but like, uh, clearly the wrong move when making a big adaptation of something. Uh, I Yes, excessive reverence uh, and worship of source material as like the be all end all is probably my my biggest sin that I can give to something, you know, in adaptation. Yeah. And, and the connection here, I guess, is that Naoki Urasawa did that that Astro Boy 
his version of Astro Boy in Pluto, and his version is so is such a huge departure of what Tezuka's Astro Boy is, uh, and it pays off at every step of the way, right? Like, uh, if he had just tried to do Astro Boy, which is another version of Dororo, basically, is a it's a boy who has to be put together by spare parts um, and refine his humanity, uh, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Tezuka really loves that theme of little boys being put together. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> not just little boys, but uh, sometimes cyborgs, big and small. So, yeah, it, I I found the connection, uh, viewing it through the, the recent Pluto adaptation is a really great way to get into it. And I think uh, even on its own, it's like extremely worth watching because it's just fantastic. Uh, like most anime and TV shows in general, um, it has a hard time landing the, the plane. Uh, but, you know, everything up to that point, I think, is really, really well done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it just, it's a good looking show. I, I, I fucking got really lucky. I watched something that's actually good. And, and does this one end with a hard cut to the Simpsons font credits? <laughs> no, it does not. It does not. It actually has like banger opening and closing themes and animations. So it did a pretty good job with it. <laughs> All right. You want to take a break? Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a break. All right. Um, the MAPPA animators are not the only ones uh, dying over in Juju Land. Obviously, we're still reeling from the loss of the only good character on that show. Uh, I won't name her, obviously, because that would be spoilers if you're if you're a few episodes behind. Uh, but she is the only girl, so I mean, it won't be that. <laughs> I guess I maybe let the cat out of the bag a little bit. I, I will. I will say uh, that that considering that I was particularly unforgiving towards characters named Mahito going into Boy and the Heron. <laughs> I will say that. Yeah. Uh, I actually I stood up and clapped when when he got hit on the head with a rock. I'll just say yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. It is jarring, isn't it? It's a little, it's a little tough uh, to swing back around. Um, so yeah, the only girl died on the good show, and now we're all very sad. And and honestly, it's hard to pull yourself out of that when you when you, something like that hits you really hard. It kind of sends you in a tailspin. And I know for me, sometimes it's difficult not to dwell on those kinds of things, and it kind of gets you in a headspace where. Uh, you just kind of, you know, you go back through the mental inventory and you're like, when else did I feel like this? You know, when was I reeling like this? Uh, And I know we've all had moments like that in our anime watching careers, if they're as long as, you know, ours are, uh, spanning, you know, three or four decades now at least. Oh, yeah, uh, at minimum. And even if the pain is dulled over over 30, 40 years of anime watching, uh, you some still get through the, the cracks in the armor, you know? Well, you know, you, you may not know this or you may have forgotten this, but uh, we touched on it in previous episodes. Uh, it's actually very rare for me to get impacted by 
a character's death like this because whenever I am in a situation where I I might die, I just don't. Okay, okay. Yes. I mean, you don't have to you don't have to reiterate that. We understand. We understand. But, you know, men cry too. And don't they? Don't that they? That is uh, uh that is the modern sentiment, isn't it? Yes. It's not unmanly to cry and let your emotions show. Can we can embrace that? as uh, another facet of masculinity. And doesn't usually hit as hard as the contemporary one, of course, because no other anime have women in them. It's true. So, it, you know, you don't usually have the same kind of emotional impact. <laughs> Can't even really think of another anime that has a female main character, but... Well, you know, like early Shakespearean productions, uh, there are no women anime actors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they would have anime boys stand in with a wig. <laughs> <laughs> that was what's so revolutionary about the Naru Sasukura is that their Sakura was played by a woman. <laughs> and that opened the doors to characters like Kugisaki to be, oh, I named her. I shouldn't oh, have. Oh, go, oh, no. I'm sorry, you guys. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to spoil that for you. Anyway, but, you know, it had me reminiscing and I was thinking back to some of the other ones that were really important to me. And I know we kind of talked about it a little bit, but, you know, there were other deaths in other animes that were important to both of us. And I just want to kind of give space to those feelings, you know, uh, make make space in the show for some of our grief. I, I think that's good. I think that's a good mindset to have. Yeah. If you want to lead, I'm, uh, I'm willing to let you open. I'm just thinking about kind of what things we share with the audience. Um, so the one that I'll, I'll go with first, because I know it's something we share together and we share with uh, everybody, I think, who's into anime is the one from, you know, what's considered consistently the best anime of all time, Full Metal Alchemist. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that, but we don't have to get into that. But of course, probably the most tragic moment in Full Metal Alchemist history is uh, when that that little chick gets Scooby-fied, <laughs> right? I mean, I can't. It's hard to think of a, a moment in Full Metal Alchemist that approaches that level of tragedy don't you think uh you know it, it's hard it's hard to think of something that comes to that level yeah especially since it is such a, a horrifying fate for a little girl hiromu arakawa installed the child kill mod on her <laughs> skyrim save specifically to prepare emotionally for putting that in the manga yeah <laughs> and to do it in such a way to um what was it like they smush her into a big dog or something? Yeah, no, they uh, they kind of put her into a big Rube Goldberg type uh, Wonka-esque machine. And at the end, she comes out a uh, horrifying abomination of nature. She gets force furried, I think, was what happened in the show. Yeah, that's that's more or less how you could describe it. Non-consensually anthropomorphized. Yeah, so Edward dips from the story for a little while and then comes back to get with his brother, Alfred. And in the meantime, Alfred has been convincing the little girl to be more accepting of furries. And to his horror, he discovers that she had sewn herself up into her fursuit and refused to come out. Uh, and I know the first time I had read this, it really hit me hard, you know? It, it, it was definitely a, a very jarring shift in tone yeah. from what we had been used to in the story up to that point. 
which started off with Alfred turning himself into a robot. Yeah, so sewing himself metaphorically into his own sort of fursuit. <laughs> a metal fursuit with no fur. Yeah, yeah, one that's less stigmatized by society, obviously. I mean, people love armor and they don't like dogs. <laughs> that's a hard rule. People like armor and they hate dogs. I mean, it's true, right? It keeps popping up in all of human society. It's true. Cross-culturally. When Alfred walks into a room, people tend to salute him. Uh, when little girl in dog suit walks into a room, people tend to vomit and turn away in horror. Uh, so I think we can see who's, you know, who's winning on the social ladder. Yeah. No, I can see. I can see why that death in particular affected you so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I would say, you know, probably for me, the the most impactful anime death, at least the first one that really kind of stuck in my mind, was when that furry in Digimon uh, got eaten by all of those giant Pac-Men oh. in Digimon Tamers. Yeah, and, and Digimon we kind of think of as a child's show. So, like, when something like that happens... Uh, it can be like a kid's first experience with um, goring, <laughs> or excuse me, voring. <laughs> well, uh, and that can really have an effect on you. I mean, it, it was my first experience with thinking like, oh, like that sucks. Her digifurry got killed. He got eaten by, by giant Pac-Man monsters. Uh, he got eaten by the Langoliers, basically. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> and now she's going to become a school shooter, which she did. She did go on to shoot a school, metaphorically, uh, if Digimon were a gun, uh, which they are, <laughs> specifically Gunmon. Yeah, and it's made all the more tragic knowing that she could have just taken it to the Pokemon heel station and, and it would have revived. Yeah, why didn't she just go to the Pokemon Center at the center of town? Nurse Joy was just waiting there with open arms ready to fix this problem, and that's why she exists uh, in the first place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So kind of a double tragedy. It really makes us think of the, the senselessness of death. Yeah, no, I would definitely credit Digimon Tamers with kickstarting my emotional puberty. Yeah. <laughs> at the tender age of 24 <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, it's difficult to uh you know when you're when you're young especially at the age you know when we started watching anime i think i started watching anime like in earnest probably when i was you know seven or eight or something you know pretty young a and you don't really understand the the permanence of death at that age you know you maybe you had at that age you'd lost uh, maybe a pet or something Maybe a, at that point, uh, a family member had gone. and But, you know, our engagement with media is sort of uh, a way to safely, you know, grapple with subjects as complicated and uh, as weighty as death for for beginners in the subject, you know. And, and so I was really appreciative, even if it shocked me so much, but I was really appreciative in a lesson uh, in, in mortality, like when we watched Goku die for the first time, right? Uh, and that really gives you the experience you need to kind of finally approach with some kind of maturity a subject like the permanence of death, right? Yeah, or like how he wakes up in the spirit world the episode after he dies. Yes, and, and dealing with that kind of uh, dislocation from, you know, reality is tough. Uh, and, you know, in the week between those two episodes 
dealing with the idea that you would never see Goku again is like, that is heavy shit for a kid. I remember really having a hard time with that. <laughs> Where were you when Goku died? I cry every time. You know, and when he, of course, when he shows up <laughs> the next episode, it gave me hope that I would see my grandfather again. <laughs> hope that I've clung to ever since. I'm still waiting to get word from the way station. <laughs> He'll be back someday, bud. <laughs> Yeah, you know. Well, you know, I like that you touched on the concept of the permanence of death, because I think this next one really helped me come to terms with that for me. And yeah. that was when, obviously, when Subaru in, in ReZero gets sliced up the stomach by that assassin. Yes. Or when Subaru in ReZero gets killed again by that assassin. Or when he gets killed by those thugs or when he gets bitten on the hand by a puppy and dies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or when that time he couldn't see because of the rain and he falls down a hole. Yeah. Uh, each more shocking than the last. Uh, you know, when when he died that one time being frozen to death and it felt like, ooh, this might actually be the one, that was really scary. That was really scary. And it really made you feel something, you know? Yeah, you remember that when he's getting when he's getting eaten alive by rabbits uh, and you think about like, wow, I wonder what he's feeling right now. Or like, how are you? How do you feel like knowing that something like that could happen to you? That this is something that happens to all of us. Like when the cute girl beats him to death. 40 times in a row with a big chain and ball. Oh, you've been reading my diary. That could happen to somebody you love. That's really heavy shit, man. That's hard to deal with. Uh, and it really left a lasting impression, obviously on both of us, um, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. Subaru died a million times. And the day eventually when Subaru dies for the last time, that's going to be a really heavy day. Uh, that is actually the day that they stop making anime. Yeah, I think so. It would be in poor taste to continue. I mean, okay, okay. So uh, we won't linger on, on ReZero too long, but basically his whole bit is that he's he's anime Kenny from South Park, right? And that we are constantly upset that he died. Yeah. <laughs> that we have a huge emotional connection to him from our childhood. Yeah, I, I think so, yeah. There are moments uh, kind of sprinkled throughout anime that have really lasting impact. I remember one that was particularly impactful for me because it was sort of my first grown-up anime. And I think it was for a lot of us when we kind of like took a step out of the Gokus and the Subarus into like the world of adult anime. Anime for not stupid babies in Cowboy Bebop. You know, it really kind of opened our eyes to something that was like a little more advanced, you know. And of course, spending all of our time with the the really lovable and exciting cast uh, of the Firefly, and kind of going through their their <laughs> their adventures uh, with their crew and and the fun cowboy adventures they would get up to on the various moons and planets uh, that they would land on, didn't really prepare us for the getting to that last episode where the beloved protagonist gets blown up and dies really suddenly. And he's, you know, he's so scarred and burned that a lot of people thought maybe he didn't die because we don't actually see his face has been completely ripped off. So we don't actually see it's him. But yeah, uh, 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 Spookerman. Spe- what? Spookerman? 
What's his name? Uh, uh, Spike Spielberg. Oh, yes, yeah, Spielberg. When he when he uh, gets killed by the the Edge Lord guy, right? Yeah, uh, atrocious or whatever his name is. Yeah, he gets blown up on the forest moon or something. Wasn't well, it? okay. So you see, the issue is that we weren't really given time to process, the, you know, all of this. This character's death before series creator Shinichiro Watanabe got sucked up by the Hollywood MCU Disney machine, and they had him come in to do all those reshoots for Avengers and for the Justice League movie, and then all the allegations started swirling around. Yeah. So. So, you know, uh, I, I don't think I don't think that we're going to be coming back to the unfortunately these characters to explore uh, or get resolution with these deaths anytime soon, especially not after they put out that movie to kind of wrap things up uh, and that flopped. Yeah, it does seem like putting out a movie post main character death is sort of a desperation play and not in very good taste, uh, especially when the death itself was so brutal. I mean, blood everywhere. It really graphic and that's how you know it's for an adult audience i heard i heard tarantino walked out of the screening because he was sick yeah <laughs> unrelated <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't eat movie theater hot dogs i'm serious <laughs> similarly i felt totally shaken at the death of one of my favorite shonen protagonists of all times i think probably what most people consider uh, the best shonen protagonist of all time especially when he dies after so we far already, into the no, series. I already said, I already said Goku. <laughs> I'm not talking about, I've, of course I'm talking about Yusuke from Yu Yu Hakusho. Oh. He has an incredibly drawn out and built up death. We spend so much time with him, getting to, to know the character, fall in love with him, and then he is unceremoniously ripped away from us by being hit by a truck in the first five minutes of the first episode. It definitely seemed cruel to the audience in a way that you don't use usually see in a in a sort of lighthearted fantasy story you know well what i found so compelling about this particular instance is that you think like okay uh what what's gonna happen he gets hit by a truck at the beginning of the series and then what he gets sent back from the spirit world to become some kind of like super spirit detective and go on cool adventures no he dies and he stays dead the entire series yeah and you know considering how many people do get hit by trucks and die uh, and do not get to come back as a cool spirit detective. It seemed like a little too visceral and real for, uh, you know, a, a young shonen audience. Yeah, it was a very somber note to start the series on, I, I will say. But as I said before, we had spent so much quality time with him up to that point that I feel like we got what we needed to out of the character, for sure. Sure. Uh, jarring as it may have been, I'm actually, I'm okay with that one. That one left me feeling pretty satisfied. <laughs> you like that one. I'm glad he died. <laughs> You're glad he died? <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Then let me let me pivot to one that I always felt was... Cruel in its senselessness, I suppose. Almost cruel in its in its lack of regard for its audience and also the humanity of its characters in itself. Something that's a little out of character for Tagashi, you know, author of Hunter Hunter, since we're uh, you know we're on the topic. These beloved characters that he kind of cruelly tossed aside. All the hunters who failed to pass the hunter exam. I mean, we have really beloved guys in this bracket here you know the the guy who puts laxatives in the sodas that he passes out 
the guy with the creepy eyebrows, the the group of men who gang up on a four-year-old. <laughs> These guys are all killed unceremoniously uh, in really horrible ways. And it's almost like played off as a joke almost, like Tagashi doesn't respect their humanity. Really upsetting stuff. Ah. It really affected me. That sounds hard. That sounds hard to go through. Yeah. And it's really traumatic because after a while we get to the hunt, the second hunter exam uh, and all we can think, you know, it's just dread leading up to that. You know, it's almost like what if there was a second eclipse in Berserk? You know, you like the heart is just racing as you approach that moment. Knowing that what happened last time was a bunch of characters uh, have anvils dropped on their heads and, <laughs> and fall into big pits with signs that say, like, big hole ahead. It's really scary stuff, you know? You don't expect that from a manga like Hunter x Hunter that is usually so lighthearted. <laughs> you know, uh, pivoting from that, something that's not lighthearted. I was, a- I was actually pretty... Yeah, I was trying to think. I was trying to think of a funny way to bring this in. Uh, I was actually pretty shocked by the the death of the mom from Oshinoko. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I can't be funny about that one. That one. That one got me. I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. You didn't see that one coming, did you? No. Uh, what I will say is that it, it was instantly made less impactful by uh, how much I hate both of her ki- children as characters. Stupid little annoying kids. The fucking pervert doctor and the weird pervert cancer girl. Almost every other aspect of the story and how it's constructed seems to be coming together to make me feel less bad about this character dying. Either because it's like uh, you either deserve to die because of your naivete and stupidity or (laughs) it's, it's better that you died because you were never going to survive in this world. Yes, I was I was going to say her death is more shocking in that it seems almost like a kindness to die rather than be the teen mom to two reincarnated perverts who intend to both literally and figuratively feed off of you, right? <laughs> for the rest of your life. It's almost like her death is only slightly more cruel than her life was going to be. <laughs> I think that's the most horrifying part. Of yeah, uh, single mom that used to be an aspiring pop artist, but had to give it up because of like essentially being both financially, emotionally and sexually taken advantage of most of her most of her life. <laughs> Actually, no, now I'm pivoting back. When I put it like that, it sounds awful to wish for her death. <laughs> Look, all I'm saying is it's a, it was better than the alternative. Uh, that's how dark Oshinoko is, is that it's actually better for her to be dead uh, than to live on under the extraordinarily disgusting circumstances with which we found her at the beginning of the story. Yeah. And also, and then she dies only slightly after the beginning of the story. Why is there even more to that story? If it had just ended that way, I think I actually would have liked it a lot more. I'm, I'm just going to say. Would have been a good one shot of the most horrifying thing that could possibly happen to somebody happening to them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, speaking of the most horrifying thing that could possibly happen in an anime, I just want to close out with this. Yeah, I was really sitting there ruminating over, like, what is the other death? Because for me, you know, this Kugisaki one is really hard. It hit me really hard because I, I really like Kugisaki. The only female anime character, like I said, it's hard to watch her go in such a brutal fashion. Um, and, you know, just personally, I, I really liked her a lot. It reminded me of 
Uh, and this is one I think a lot of us will share. But uh, Nate, you remember the season finale of season two of the OC? Do you remember when Marissa shoots Ryan's brother, Trey? He had just come from prison uh, and was trying to really make his way back into the world. And Ryan was offering his support. But, you know, Trey couldn't shake off that 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 prison life. And, and he was a little too rough around the edges. And, you know, I'm not I'm not obviously I'm not trying to forgive Trey for the transgressions he took against Marissa. I mean, his what he did to her was awful, obviously. But Ryan having to watch his brother get shot to death right in front of him. I mean, that is I mean, it's really brutal. And that season had already been extremely emotionally taxing. <laughs> Ryan's relationship with Marissa obviously was rough. I mean, Marissa was dating Alex on the side and Ryan didn't really know how to deal with that because he's been opening up over the season emotionally from, from who he was in, in season one, being that, that emotionally stunted orphan who was just trying to like keep his head down and not get hurt again. And in season two, he was kind of unfolding, becoming a, a more three-dimensional person in every sense of the word. And then to have this moment come from somebody who was already so emotionally attached to and had such a complicated relationship with and the complicated relationship he had with Trey, you know, unexpectedly coming back into his life. The only real family member he had left, you know, besides his adopted family. And to have those two people clash in that way. I mean, it's just awful, you know, and, and it's such an impactful moment, not just for me and us and the audience, but for television itself. The amount of respect and reverence that season finale has given in the in the lifetime of television ever since, it's, it's changed the landscape of television itself, TV dramas, you know. <laughs> uh, I can't really think of anything that could possibly top an anime death like Trey getting killed by Marisa in the end of season two of The O.C. I mean, that's really the biggest one, right? <laughs> I mean, we- <laughs> <laughs> dear Nate, <laughs> I'm writing this letter to you. <laughs> <I'm sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> all right you've totally derailed any kind of coherent thought well, I, no just tell us what your thoughts are about when marissa shoots trey i'm sure you have thoughts right i mean it was so em- emotionally impactful on all of us i was devastated I I think that that may have been a real turning point in my life. Well, what do you think about, I mean, you've told me all the time about how you consider yourself sort of a Ryan. You you told me before we started recording about how you see so much of yourself in Ryan and Seth. And so the show was really special to you because it was almost like your dueling personalities being synthesized on television, like right in front of you. Okay. All right. I don't know enough about the OC to keep up with this bit. (laughs) That's enough here. <laughs> That's enough. I don't want to hear about the OC anymore. Uh, I've always considered our dynamics sort of a Ryan and Seth. <laughs> You're Seth, obviously. Now, now, which one was the Naruto and which one was the Sasuke? Oh, well, see, that's where it becomes really complicated because Ryan embodies a lot of the the uh, adventurous and brave spirit of uh, an outcast kind of coming to terms with his own ability to overcome his dark past in Ryan. But Seth also embodies a lot of like the goofy, silly charm of Naruto, you know? Uh, and in that way that Naruto learns that people can like him for who he is and not just what he can do, you know what I mean? 
he synthesizes a lot of those two things together. Uh, but also, on the other hand, you know, Ryan does have his brooding darkness like uh, a Sasuke. And, of course, Seth also embodies a lot of Sasuke's, you know, sense of inferiority, his sense uh, that he's lacking something that someone like Ryan has. And, and that jealousy kind of pushes him into a dark place that leads him down a path that changes him fundamentally as well. Well, yeah, but Ryan is also the vessel for the fox demon. And so I think that makes him more like more like Naruto. Yes, I mean, if you want to get literal, yes, Ryan is the vessel for the nine-tailed fox, and, uh, you know, that's where his his corporeal power comes from. And, of course, you know, that's obviously why the Cooper family has so many problems, is because they can't really contain the power of the nine-tailed fox, and Ryan, uh, you know, takes a lot of drugs and alcohol to deal with those problems, and, and they don't really know how to deal with that, because... Seth has never had those kinds of problems. He, Seth doesn't have any kind of spirit locked up in him, and he's never had to externalize his emotional needs in the way that requires drugs and alcohol to kind of numb himself from letting that spirit overflow and hurt the people around him. <laughs> and looking towards college, when that spirit is finally going to become useful to Ryan— and him losing the ability to kind of channel that energy uh, when he tries to overcome his problems with drugs and alcohol without losing his control over the Nine Spirit Fox causes that car to explode. <laughs> and, you know, when the car explodes uh, and Marissa dies in his arms like that because he couldn't control the power of the Nine Tails. I mean, that is another I mean, I didn't even want to get into that anime death, but that is another huge moment. It's not obviously not quite as impactful as Trey, but I mean, that is a tragic anime death. I'm genuinely concerned about how many details you know about the OC. <laughs> this was the single most popular anime ever released in America. I don't know how, how you have not internalized the OC. <laughs> I, I, apparently I don't either. Wow. Uh, I, I apparently missed out on a huge cultural touchdown. Jeez, you know, we were trying to, like, move past this, and now, you know, Nate's really reopened these wounds. I, I, I can't, I thought this was going to be healing for me, but now I'm just dwelling on Marissa and Trey's death, and, and uh, I, we, I think we gotta, I, I think we just gotta wrap this up so I can... I can be alone with my thoughts. This is too he's much. Crazy. He's going to be talking about the OC for the next four months. I'm back in this place. Now I'm, it's almost like I'm hearing I'm hearing hide and seek play in my head right now. <laughs> uh, all right, let's wrap this up. Oh, God. <laughs> Handsome, beautiful listeners. My grief is overwhelming me right now. I thought I had worked it out, but I did not. Oh, it hurts. It really hurts. I also need to go and work on a two-hour animated feature film to process my feelings of grief and, and disappointment. Uh, both with my life and this show. And how, how how do you intend to metaphorize that grief in your magical realism story? I don't know. I'll put in some shit about a talking bird. I don't know. Yeah, some kind of fucking... L okay, listen, if Miyazaki can rip off Pan's Labyrinth, I shouldn't have a problem. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Beautiful, handsome listener, thank you for putting up with us. As always, please go check us out. Uh, I'm doing the TikTok videos. We're uploading these to YouTube. Oh, it's a good thing I'm grieving right now. I know. He's grieving. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to hear me shamelessly I'm not pitch. Listening. Uh, do the stuff. Like the buttons. You know the thing. Is that it? Are we done? Uh, yeah. Hey, all I'm saying is, uh, uh, we spent an entire season of Juju listening to these fucking funeral bells. Like, I had to get it out of my system. <laughs> I they. 
I'm not going to say that that anybody should be shocked because they telegraphed pretty much every shocking moment in this season so hard in that opening sequence that <laughs> like it's all just there. It's literally the only thing the animators got to do beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, bye. bye. can't help it. It's just what I talk like. <laughs> yeah, why do you think it takes so long to edit these?